Our sermon text this morning is from John 6, 41 to 71. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 6, if you haven't turned there already, John chapter 6. I will go ahead and pray. Our holy, just, righteous, beautiful, eternal, loving Father. 
We know that you have given us the words of eternal life through your Son. And we sing them, we confess them, we read them. God, we ask that you would make them true in our hearts. We can't do this in and of ourselves, but it is only a work of your Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit would work in us. Open our eyes, God, and break apart our hard hearts, God. Plow those fields and plant the seed of your word that it might grow. And that you might be glorified. And God, that we would, all of us, would be prepared for the time of harvest when you will call all men and all women to stand before you in judgment, God. Prepare our hearts for that time. Prepare our hearts to delight in you for all of eternity and to begin that delight in you at this very moment. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. One of the great joys of coaching youth soccer is that you get to nurture up these children that have been entrusted to you. Just a couple hours a week, but they've been entrusted to you. And you get to nurture them up and train them up. And one of the main ways you do that is by yelling at them. And that's fantastic. You get to yell at them. And no one's exempt. Little, little Lucy, who's five years old and can't even tie your cleats yet, no exemptions. You're getting yelled at too. Run faster. Kick the ball harder. When you're on defense, pivot your hips. Take away the open shot. Everybody's getting yelled at. And it's glorious. <laughs> It's therapeutic even. And you're demanding of them to do things that they can't do. Oh, but I can't run the whole game. I just can't. Ellis, I didn't ask you if you could. I told you that you must. Oh, no. Run, run, run. Demanding of them what is necessary, even though you know that they can't do that. And it's the same thing we see in our text this very morning. In our text, we see then the first part is them Christ tells you must believe. You must believe. There's no other way around it. You must believe. You want to have eternal life? You must believe. Okay. I want to believe. I want to do it. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. And we get to part two, starting verse 60. And Christ says, no, but you can't, actually. You must do it, but you can't. You must believe to have eternal life, but you can't. Because your, your flesh is of no help whatsoever. It's the Spirit who gives life. See how this flows. The necessity of belief. The inability, then, to believe. In verses 60 through 65. And then finally, in verse 66 through the end here in 71. It's not the inability to believe, but once the Spirit works in you, it's the inability to turn away. You can't even turn away from that which you couldn't even do after the Spirit of God works in you. And all of this is flowing to the point that Christ is calling you to believe and believe unto eternal life. So this is where we're going to be going. Starting in verse 41 through 59. The necessity of belief. You must believe. After that, you can't. The inability to believe in and of yourself. 
but only in the Spirit. And then finally, verses 66 through the end here, the inability to turn away, which the Spirit of God works in you. Let's go to our text here. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And this revelation of Christ is evoking a response from the Jewish people and then also from you as you sit here in these chairs. And what do you see from the Jews? They're beginning to grumble about him. The grace of God has been with them and they're able to witness the feeding of the 5,000. They were able to see Christ as he walks upon the water. And that was warmly welcomed. They loved that. They thought that was great. But then the idea that he was the bread of life, who has come down from heaven. Well, that draws them to grumble and to complain. R.C. Royal makes the brilliant point that had Christ come as a king, they wouldn't have grumbled whatsoever. No, they would have asked for more bread. Had he come to conquer, they would have gladly followed him. But is to come as the son of Joseph and Mary is unthinkable because it's humbling. And humility has no place, they would say, in our Messiah. Because a humble Messiah, you must humble yourself to worship him. You follow a king, an earthly king, you can raise yourself up. But to follow a humble Messiah, you must worship him in humility. Also, they're saying, how can you say you've, you're from heaven? You've, Joseph's your dad. Mary's your mother. How can, you, how can you possibly say this? An understanding that is tethered right to the earth. An inability to see beyond the flesh and what is physically right in front of them. And so, yes, you can feed me. That's great. But none of this fanatical stuff about you being the bread of life that has just come down from heaven. Just feed me and let me go on to Jerusalem and have my religious experience there. Enough of this. It's too much. It's easy in our hearts to cast aside the Jewish people here. As we see, read them, oh, they're foolish. Didn't they see the Messiah? And we do the same thing. Just like them, we have this incredibly narrow view of who Christ is. And then he comes along and widens it out a little bit. So it's quite comfortable when you see him as the one who's going to feed you. And then you get to see him walk on water. That's amazing. But then when he says, I'm the bread of life who's come down from heaven. No, no, don't, no, don't widen it out a little bit. You're from Joseph and Mary. Let me view you in this way. But when Christ comes and he widens it out, he says, no, I am the bread of life. And it is through me and me alone that you have life. You must believe in me. And he begins to widen out our understanding of who he is. And thus also widening out his demands upon our life. So we see he comes to us and he states that he is the bread of life. And that there is no life in him whatsoever. Then we must have full 
full obedience to him. All of our lives must then be, if, he is, if, he, if we can't view him like this, but we must widen it out, that our only hope of eternal life is through Christ and Christ alone. And that he demands everything of our lives, not just our worship here on Sunday morning, but every aspect of our lives. Well, then that makes us grumble. So husbands, you, you, you see that Christ is the bread of life, providing all that we need. And he pursues his bride and his sheep, hear his voice. And he raises them up and he calls the little children to follow him. So husbands, how do you, when, when Christ winds that out, how do you then respond? Well, you be a man. You provide for your family. You passionately love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you raise up your children in the church, in the faith, leading them to worship. Wives, Christ is fully submissive to the Father. So, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Older women train up the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Younger women, love your husbands and love your children. Be sensible and pure workers at home. That's what the Bible says. I just quoted the Bible to you. And we haven't even gotten to the part of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I can see some of you are quite uncomfortable with that. So it's not just them grumbling. You see how our understanding of who Christ is, when he widens it out, makes it wider and wider, and calls you to obey him in all things, inevitably it's going to make you grumble. Because he's exposing all of the idolatry in your heart and painfully pulling it out. But what a great grace of God to expose our sin to us and not be content with it being there, but to pull it out, no matter how painful it might be. So verse 43 here, Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. And then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And this one quite, okay, I get verse 43 and I get verse 44. Don't grumble. Okay, I get that. But then also I get this idea that no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, the sovereignty of God that will draw all people. But why, why would he follow 44 after 43? What do they have to do with each other? I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And then I realized quite humbly, um, it's in the text in verse, verse 65. Verse 764. But there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You see what's going on here? They're grumbling because of their unbelief. That's what it is. It's provoking them. Towards grumbling. So when you see that in our own hearts. 
It's a little canary in the mind, isn't it? Your frustrations in the faith, grumbling of your current circumstances, wherever God may have you be. It's directly our grumbling and frustrations with God. I should be married by now, but I'm not married. I should have this promotion by now, but I don't have it. I should have children by now, but I don't have them. Whatever grumbling we might have towards God is directly related to a misunderstanding of who He is or that's our unbelief manifesting itself in our own hearts. Don't you know I should be retired by now and here I am working 10-hour days? Well, believe. 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 And here's the promise. In verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. It's, it's whoever. This promise is for everyone. Christianity is the most inclusive religion of them all. It's open for anyone. For the Arab, the Jew, the attic, and the drunkard. It's open for everyone. Even if you're clothed in layers of sin, this promise is for you. If you believe, you will have eternal life. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, these promises of God are for you. And it's enough of this, oh, if you had only known what I've done or what I've done this last week or what I want to do. Enough of that. Seriously. God has created the whole universe, the whole world out of nothing. And you think he can take your little heart, your puny little heart that loves sin and create something new there? Of course he can. So stop with this grandiosing about your sin and how God must be smaller than your sin. No, that's foolishness. It's whoever. It's opened up to anyone. Even to your parents as you see them continuing in their unbelief, continue preaching and sharing the gospel to them. It's open to them all. Your children, as you see the seeds of rebellion in them, the gospel is still then open for them. And even for you as you continue in your sin. So it's whoever and then whoever believes. Yes, it's open to everyone, but there's this catch, right? There's always a catch. You have to believe. Not that just that he existed. That's not what we believe. Or that he was a good man. Or that he was a good teacher. No, that's not it. You must believe that Christ died for our sins, that I cannot get to God by myself, even though that's the longing of my heart. Why do you think every other religion created by man somehow brings you back to God? Of course, that's the longing of your heart. You must believe that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. You must believe, not that you're a good person, no, or that Christ was a good teacher, that he existed. No, you must believe that he will take away your sins, and for that he has died. And he was raised again, and he has gone back to glory, just as we too will go back to glory. 
Cole also writes that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's, it's open for whoever. Whoever believes and then has eternal life. It's not in the future. It's not as though you will have it. John so beautifully makes it known that this eternal life has come to us now. This spiritual eternal life. Sure, you're going to physically die like everyone else. But now, when you believe, you have eternal life. And you will pass from this world, but you will not die. You are a new creation in Christ. And when you believe, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you as a pledge of this future inheritance. So what do you do then? Okay? What do you do? Go to verse 49. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And what did they do? Well, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Talking about himself. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This physical bread of this wandering in the wilderness is obviously what he's alluding back to. God sustained his people physically by giving them bread from heaven that has come down and would be there and sustain them. They'd go out in the morning and there it was. And they would have all that they needed. But you know what? They still died. This physical bread cannot sustain your spiritual souls. It didn't work in the wilderness and it's not going to work when I feed you 5,000. That's pointing to something greater. If you're seeing things in your life or in Scripture and they're ending there and not pointing to you towards Christ, you're not seeing Him in the right light. When you're reading about the man in the wilderness, you should be thinking, how does this point to Christ? Oh, He's the bread of life. If I try to eat of this world, I will die. And that is the end. I must feast upon Christ and Christ and Christ alone. We get caught in the same trap. And this physical world can be pleasing to the eyes. And maybe it's even a good gift of God. But it's a temporal gift at most, at best. It cannot sustain you. But there's only one who can, and that is Christ. And so you see the parallel of what's going on here. So you say, those who believe have eternal life, right? Whoever believes, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Now what we're seeing is, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. So what does it mean to eat of this bread? It means, to, obviously, it means to believe. So if you're saying, how, how do I apply this? Well, then you believe. That's what it is. You must believe. You must believe. There's no other way around it. You want to die in the wilderness? No. You must believe. Do not sustain yourself on the things of this world. You must believe. So they continue to, to, to see this physically. 
And so obviously they begin asking this in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he do that? How can he give us his flesh? And Christ just hammers them again and again and again. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't let up a little bit. He doesn't accommodate their unbelief. No, he just hammers it. Well, how am I going to eat your your flesh? That doesn't make sense. And he jumps right in on him. He says, no, truly, truly, again, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So not only that, but if you don't do it, what does it mean to eat his flesh? Well, I'll tell you this. If you don't do it, you're going to die. You have no life in you whatsoever. But then he goes on. There's, there's no neutrality whatsoever. Physically alive and spiritually dead like a man on death row. It's a horrible place to be. But then he continues, verse 40, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. See, here it's not only just eating his flesh, but now you're going to drink his blood. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's not only that, but if you don't do it, you're going to, you have no life in you. Eat my flesh? No, it's not just eating my flesh, but it's also drinking my blood as well. Don't leave that out. And then in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. See, this eternal life is abiding and dwelling in and with Christ. Again and again and again, he's so clearly putting it out that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but through him. So look at this eternal life. It's so beautiful. In verse 57. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, believes in me. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. To deny Christ is to reject the Father. But to believe in Christ is to abide in him as Christ and the Father are one. So why are you going to have eternal life? Your eternal life is nothing short of the eternal life of God given to you through Christ. Just as the life of God shall see no end, so shall your life see no end, nor see a conclusion, but it shall only see the glories of God. Okay, so we see the necessity to believe. You must believe. You must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And if you don't, you have no life in you whatsoever. Very emphatic. It's not as you might live or or you might enjoy yourselves, but I wouldn't do that. No, it's not that. It's No, you're dead. You have no life in you whatsoever. And you think that's hard? Well, okay, well, it's not just eating my flesh. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How about that? You getting it? Grumbling yet? Okay, so we must believe. Now we're going to see the inability to believe. Verse 60. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 60. If you don't, open up your Bibles and look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. First, it was the Jews who were just following him to be fed. Perhaps they were curious. And these dark words of Christ about being this eternal bread that was coming down from heaven kind of caused them to grumble. But now it's not just them grumbling. Who's grumbling now? Now it's the disciples. Now even the disciples are finding themselves grumbling. But there's no reason to be offended. Why would you be grumbling and complaining about the words of Christ? The demands that are put upon you. Why would you be, why would you be grumbling on them? Offended at the very thing that will bring you life. It's like an infant three days old and grumbling about their mother's milk that gives them life. No, it makes no sense whatsoever. Aslan in the magician's nephew, he says, Oh, sons of Adam, how cleverly you defend yourself against all, against all that might do you good. That is us. The words of Christ come, and they are spirit, and they are life. And what do we do? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, but let me, let me narrow that back in and let me see who you, are, who you are, Christ. Let me just understand you like this. I don't want you to consume all of my life. I don't, want to, I don't want you to be one of those fanatics. Is that really what you want? Like if I just kind of fall over the edge? Am I going to be one of those fanatics? I don't want to be those guys. I don't want, John the Baptist is awesome, but I don't want to be John the Baptist. Let me have my comfortable life and believe in you in a restricted sense. And it'll be fine because I'll still get to go to heaven because I can play the game of believing you and still enjoying my life here. No, that's foolishness. You have no life in you whatsoever. You must believe with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. None of this continuing on in your sin. As though you can accommodate it a little bit. Just a little bit of pornography on the side, but I'm, I still believe. Let me pull that back in. No, don't, don't, don't get into that. Don't get into my anger and frustration. My greed and jealousy. No, 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 no. Let's restrict that in. Just let me believe in a narrow sense of who you are. If Christ isn't bringing you to grumble, you probably have a very shallow understanding of who he is. But if Christ is coming along, kicking down doors and ripping idolatrous actions and love out of your heart, yeah, it's going to be painful. Incredibly painful. But imagine a God who didn't do that. Imagine a God who didn't demand all of your heart and all of your life and all of your worship. He's not worthy to be praised. He doesn't have the words of life. He has words of comfort and accommodation. But that is not our Christ. That is not our Christ at all. So what do we do? We build this wall around our hearts of finely constructed, of temporal goods and a life of ease. 
and a little self-idolatry, and then we hold it all together with a mortar of pride. And then Christ's words come in like an artillery shell and just blow it all up. He pulls out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And for many, it's too painful. And, and they turn away. It's just too much. And they turn away. And it's painful because salvation through belief alone is humbling. It kills your pride. And it demands, it tells you that you can't give everything, but then it demands all that you have. It demands all of your life and tells you that you can do nothing. That this flesh is of no help whatsoever. We're incapable of doing it by ourselves. And that the flesh is of, the flesh, it's, it's of no help whatsoever. All of your good works that you think will stand in judgment of God will melt like wax before the sun. You won't even get close enough to offer them up to God. They'll just melt away. And this is the trap that we fall into. We, we think we're good enough. So all this talk about belief is, is for the, the spiritual plebeians. Well, yeah, they, of course they need belief. They're not, they're not as charitable or they're not as kind. They're not as refined or reformed or as patient as we are. Of course they need belief, but I have no need of it whatsoever. My dear friend, your righteous deeds are not enough. When we think that our righteous deeds are good enough, we are declaring that we are the judge. That I actually get to judge myself. But think about it. If you want to enter into the room of the king, if you want to come into where God is, where this king is ruling, who gets to determine who gets in? I was, once I went to the Nepal, I was in living, this is a side topic, I was living in Nepal and there was a king who was being ousted because of the civil war and I went there and I demanded to meet with him because I wanted to share the gospel with him. I did not get in. I could not demand that I make it in to meet the king of Nepal. He should have repented of his sins, but he didn't. It's the king who gets to declare who gets to come into his presence. It's not us in the outside. So our righteous deeds, no, they're not enough. You're not the judge. You might think they're great, better, I'm good. I'm better than Hitler, Mussolini. Fantastic, great. But your righteous deeds are not enough. Christ is the king and he will decide who gets to come in. It's not by your deeds, it's by his deeds. It's not by your works, it's by his works. It's not by your righteousness, but it's by his righteousness that you will come in. And for a myriad of reasons, he has determined that it is through belief in that. That belief and faith and trust in him is the only way that we will come into the presence of the king. So let us not grumble. Let us not grumble at the graciousness of our Messiah. Why, why shall the balm, the balm that heals our soul and enlivens our heart, why should that be pushed aside and pushed away? No, let the words of Christ, though difficult they will be, let them wash over you. And when they are dangerous, and when they are difficult, and when they, you think they are burdensome, praise be to God for their exposing sin that you didn't even know was there. All right, so we've seen here this 
this necessity to believe. You must believe. The inability to believe. The flesh is of no help whatsoever, but it's only a gift of the Spirit. Now you're going to see this inability to turn away. Go in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as twelve as well? Just, do you, you want to go? Go ahead. You want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you've seen this, that your life is not your own. But it belongs to Christ. And unfortunately, you've, I know all of you have seen throughout your lives, some who have turned away and some who have kept faithful. Some of our dearest friends who preach the gospel in villages, like a clear gospel, preach the gospel in the villages that have never heard the gospel before. Some of them have turned away and buried themselves joyfully into a life of horrible, wretched sin. But for those of you See, the flesh is of no help at all. So if you build it upon your own righteousness and your own flesh, it's just going to wash away. But if it is the Spirit who gives you life, then you shall persevere to the end. It is Christ who is working. And you are beautiful that you won't turn away. My sheep, they hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. No matter how difficult it can be. Even if you think turning away might even be easier or better. But you know, I, I can't. I just simply can't. Even though you're tempted, you to go, I, I have nothing, God. But you have the words of eternal life. So take whatever you want. I don't care. But just give me you. That is the work of the Spirit within you. So what do we do here? Wrapping it up. Use this, number one, use this story to examine your own heart. Yes, the story is true and it's crafted in this way. But use the story to examine your own heart. You, you see what John is doing here so beautifully. Reading this story should encourage you, but it should also bring you great terror. great humility, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be the one to grumble? Am I going to be the one of the ones who turn away? Or not? Which one shall I be? Will I fall away or continue in the faith? I know if I just left to my own strength, I'm going to fall away. But Lord, carry me through to the end. Carry me through. If I make it to see your glory, I know it is only because your spirit has been working in me. Use this to examine your own heart and work out your salvation with fear, great fear, and trembling. That's number one. Examine your hearts. Number two, some of you have turned away. 
some of you have. Come back. Nearly everyone, nearly everyone who saw Christ and encountered him, they turned away. So few made it all the way through. And that's some of you this morning. Perhaps you, ever so slowly your faith has grown cold. And the desire that would once drive you to the wilderness to follow Christ is now kind of ebbed away. And you used to pick up the glass and drink from Christ. But you've put it down. That was back when life was easier and burdens weren't so consuming upon you. But it's never too late. It's never too late to come back to Christ, to pick up that glass again and drink until you're fully satisfied in Him. So number one, examine your hearts. As we look forward, it's a, which one shall I do? <laughs> it's quite fearful. And then as we look back, we go, oh, it was God the whole time. Perspectively, looking forward, walk out with fear and trembling and then give God the glory as you look back upon your life and see how he has carried you through, oftentimes in spite of yourself, not because of your great devotion or your great love for him, but because of his great spirit working in you. So number one, examine your heart. Number two, some of you have turned away. Come back. It is not too late. Number three, fully satisfy yourself in Christ. Both exhaustively and exclusively. Exclusively. Because there's going to be many things that will sing these songs of greatness and glory to you. They will not satisfy. They're counterfeits at best. Satisfy yourself exhaustively or exclusively in Christ. And then exhaustively as well. Come to him again and again and again and again. You have your eternal life now. Come to Him now through praying and meditation, reading of the Word, memorizing Scripture, participating in worship. You have eternal life now. Be fully satisfied in Him now as you will be throughout all of eternity. He's enough to satisfy you through all of eternity. Enjoy that now. Come, eat of His flesh, drink of His, of his blood. Be fully satisfied in Him and Him alone. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may taste and see that you are good. Give us belief, God, to carry us through. We know that we have so much sin in our hearts, but God, let us be joyful when we have it exposed to the light, God. And we ask that your spirit would give us life, God, that we wouldn't turn to our flesh or our own good deeds whatsoever. But God, that we would trust in you and you and you alone, God, and let us come to you. Let us come to your son who has the words of eternal life and carry us through until we see you face to face. Amen. Amen. As we prepare for a time of communion, I want to remind you that this is simply a display of belief. I think Peter's a great example 
of belief. It's not fully understanding. He was quite confused by what Jesus was saying. But he said, I'm going to follow you. And communion is an invitation to immerse yourself in that story.